0: So people of God in Christ as the theme of Christ um, authority was the, if you recall, was the prominent theme in the early chapters of Mark's gospel. So the theme of faith, the theme of faith has uh, a prominent place in these last three chapters of the gospel of Mark. So let's do a quick review of uh, those passages that uh, have spoken to us, have taught us about faith Uh, In Mark 7, we heard the story of the Syrophoenician woman uh, who displayed a very deep faith um, by confessing her unworthiness to receive Jesus' help even as she pursued his blessing further on the basis of grace. And her faith serves as a kind of backdrop then for the stories of unbelief that follow. Comparison contrast to some degree. For example, in Mark 8, we saw Jesus feeding the 4,000 on the heels of his feeding of the 5,000. And yet, despite having witnessed both miraculous feedings, the disciples were still distracted and worried about their poor bread supply. Let that sink in. In the second half of Mark 8, we heard Peter's grand confession of faith in Jesus as the Christ, but followed up by his grand denial of Jesus in trying to keep him from his appointed ministry on the cross. And then in the first part of Mark 9, we saw Jesus taking three of his disciples up to a mountaintop in order to instill faith. Remember from last week that the transfiguration of Jesus uh, was, uh, was a gift from Jesus, was a ministry of Jesus to instill faith within the hearts of these disciples who were given to witness his transfiguration. And so against the, the backdrop of the faith of a Gentile woman, we see the unbelief of Israel, And specifically, of the disciples of Jesus. And the point of all this is that despite Israel's privileged position under the grace of God, despite being God's chosen people, despite being recipients of God's law, despite being given the prophets and now the Son of God himself, they were faithless and disobedient. And the point is not to say that Israel is worse than any other people. The point is that through Israel, the whole world is convicted of being dead in sin and needful of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Well, all of this by way of review in order to trace the theme of faith throughout these three chapters in Mark. Because now, in the second half of Mark 9, the theme of faith continues as we hear Jesus say, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I bear with you? We also hear a man being called to faith who cries out to Jesus, help me overcome my unbelief. And furthermore, we hear Jesus teaching his disciples and pointing out the connection between Faith and prayer. We'll spend a bit of time on this, the connection between faith and prayer. As he says, this kind of demon, he says, can only come out by prayer. And so what we want to gain this evening is uh, an understanding of this connection between faith and prayer. When Jesus discovers that his disciples uh, have not been able to drive out this demon... Uh, he charges them with belonging to an unbelieving generation. So the problem is clearly that they have so little faith. They are helpless to free this young man from the demon that possesses him because of their lack of faith. However, when the disciples get around to asking Jesus why they could not drive out the demon, Jesus now answers in terms of a lack of prayer. So, which is it, a lack of faith or a failure to pray? And the answer, as it quite often is, is yes, it is both. Given that prayer is an expression of faith, that's the connection between faith and prayer. Prayer is an expression of faith. The first thing we, we must do is to answer the question how is prayer? Uh, An expression of faith. And we can answer that when we pray, what are we doing? But we are looking away from ourselves. And that is where faith begins. Faith begins in looking away from yourself. In getting your focus off yourself. Which is what you must do in order to pray. How can we help but think of Psalm 121? Sometimes you might wonder why the pastor picks uh, a certain psalm. Uh, we sang Psalm 121 as our psalm of preparation because here uh, the psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? The psalmist has, has reached that point, it would seem, of looking away from himself. He's giving up on himself. Human beings are all the time looking to to themselves, looking at themselves, trusting in themselves. But when we pray, we must do as the psalmist does. He looks away from himself, even as he realizes that he needs help, that he cannot rely upon himself. And so he is ready to confess true faith in God. As he goes on to exclaim, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In noting these uh, first two verses of Psalm 121, I cannot help but think of uh, how the Reformed Church, at least uh, in my experience growing up in it, uh, used to have what was called a votum. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. uh, A votum at the beginning of each worship service. It would immediately follow the call to worship. The votum was a, a declaration of the congregation's dependence upon God, usually by way of these words from Psalm 121. The question was asked, from where does our help come? And the answer was given. Quite often the pastor, the, 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 the preacher would, would, would ask the question, from where does our help come? And the congregation knew to respond in unison, our help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. And the point of the votum was uh, to set the matter straight and clear from the very beginning of the worship service. That's what happens really even in the call to worship. But the votum as well sets the matter straight from the beginning of the worship service that God's people come before him looking away from themselves and depending fully upon the God whom they are worshiping. And maybe we need to get back to the votum because uh, it would seem that, that we are prone to think of relating to God without having really and, and fully to depend upon Him. And the way this often shows is in our lack of frequent and ardent prayer. But another way that prayer is an expression of faith is that when when we pray, we look specifically to God for his blessing. Again, the psalmist is not uh, or has not confessed faith simply by looking around him in, 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 in desperation for help. Faith is not found in him until he answers this question, "My help comes from the Lord." And faith is not found to be true faith until he identifies which lord he is looking to namely the maker of heaven and earth so so prayer is an expression of faith as we look away from ourselves but even more as we look specifically to god for his blessing and so it is that we contradict ourselves if we claim to have faith without being a people of prayer If we claim to believe in God and yet do not pray to Him, if we claim to be trusting Him, but do not go to Him to ask of Him what we need, is that not a certain contradiction? If we would honor God as God, then we must call upon His name as our God of providence, the God who provides for us, Here another psalm comes to mind, Psalm 50, which says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. God is saying that this is how we truly worship him, by praying to him and relying upon him to deliver us, to provide for us, to bless us with whatever it is that we need. And so the second thing that we must do is to answer the question, why? Why does God work in this way through prayer? You might put it that way. Jesus told his disciples, uh, this kind can only come out by prayer. And this fits the pattern already set forth in, in Psalm 50. God calls upon us to pray to him, to ask him for the things we need. And he promises to respond in faithfulness to our prayers. Jesus even said in another place, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. The point, of course, is not that God will give us everything we ask for. And we ought to be glad for that because we sometimes, many times, don't even know what we really need. The point is that God works through prayer. And the question is, why does God work through prayer? It's a mysterious thing uh, how it is that there might be one kind of demon that uh, would have responded to the immediate commands of the disciples and uh, how there is this kind of demon that we might say is more stubborn. Uh, We don't understand all that and it's uh, largely unhelpful uh, to us to speculate about all of that, the point is that sometimes the blessing of God does not come to us unless and until we pray. And we can understand that, that somewhat better as we remember the divine method of operation uh, in, in always working for his glory. God does all things for his glory at, even as he says in Isaiah 48, verse 11, it says it several times in, in Isaiah, but in Isaiah forty-eight eleven it says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Therefore, whenever we say, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory We are simply repeating back to God his own way, his own commitment to his glory. So this is why God calls upon his people to pray and even stirs up his people to pray by his spirit and then works through the prayers of his people. God works through the prayers of his people because prayer prepares God's people to give him the glory. To begin with, prayer is meant to be an expression of our helplessness and our dependence upon God. And in this way, we are prepared to see God work and to acknowledge that He is the one working and later to come before Him with thanksgiving and praise uh, for what He has done. And there are times when God will not be robbed of His glory He will not come to the aid of his people until they, through prayer, prepare themselves to see and acknowledge and give thanks to him for his blessing. The illustration that I have uh, in mind here comes right out of scripture. It's the illustration of Israel up against the Red Sea. And it's important for us to remember that soon after Israel left Egypt, God commanded that they turn back and that, that they set up camp. Uh, in, and to set up camp in, in, in what must have been the worst possible strategic location. They had their backs up against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his army was bearing down on them. And you may recall how Israel immediately recognized their plight and how they got angry at Moses. How could you make this mistake? How could, you, how could you put us in this poor position? How could we have followed you out of Egypt? And Moses said to them, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Prayer is a matter of being still before the Lord. Not just for the sake of some spiritual stillness, some holy hush. Prayer is a matter of being still before God in preparation for his deliverance and for the glory of his name. It's much harder to miss the fact that God has done something in your life when you have first prayed for that blessing out of a sense of desperation and need. So prayer is about acknowledging that you are up against the Red Sea. You are helpless and and that unless God provides for you the thing you are asking for, unless God provides, you will die. And here we may have to confess that uh, maybe we've done quite a little uh, true praying in our day of ease and luxury because we do not tend to pray for things like, like food and drink lest we die. And so maybe we're polite enough to ask, give us this day our daily bread, but we tend not to acknowledge by the by the fervency of our prayer, that we are fully dependent upon the Lord our God for our daily bread. Here's the shortcoming of old-time religion as well as contemporary spirituality. Old-time religion tends to formalize prayer, or at least it can, and contemporary spirituality tends to programize prayer. And so we very well may have shifted from uh, one form of poor prayer to another form of poor prayer. So that many are praying, but nothing is happening because we're not really praying out of an acknowledgement of our need. And so we're not preparing ourselves to receive the blessings of God to the glory of God alone. We love a form of religion or spirituality that leaves us in control, that leaves us with the power. But God will not yield his glory to another. And so as long as we think of prayer as as a formality, as long as we think of prayer as a spiritual program to make things happen, we pray in vain. If prayer is understood as us informing God of things he doesn't already know, if prayer is a power that we wield, if prayer is our plugging into God, and, or, or perhaps even unleashing God, so long as prayer is corrupted in any of these ways, then do we not pray in vain. God, God works through prayer, but he doesn't work through just any kind of prayer. God works through prayer to bring all glory to himself, so that rules out all prayer that reserves glory for ourselves and that brings us to another question in closing how can uh, how then should we pray and we can answer by considering I think this will work by considering three postures of prayer. Firstly, we must pray from our knees, whether literally or figuratively, from our knees. We must pray in deep humility before God. But humility, like prayer, is often formalized or programmized. We can fake it or hope to generate it. But the only way to arrive at humility before God is to to know God in Scripture and to to stand before Him as a sinner, being saved by grace in Jesus Christ. So may God give us to, to pray on our knees, whether literally or figuratively. All formalism aside, let us pray in deep humility before our Savior God. And secondly, we must pray looking up to heaven, which is to say we must pray looking away from ourselves and looking only to God for his blessing. Let us not think of prayer as a, as a method or as a power or as any kind of spiritual program. We all have heard a hundred times, a thousand times, the power of prayer, the power of prayer, the power of prayer. And granted, the Apostle James writes in James 5.18 that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. But should the petitioner, being granted what he asked for, speak then of the power of petition? Should the beggar, being helped, speak of the power of begging? Should the one who has fallen and and is injured, having been lifted up and healed, then speak of how powerful it is that she cried out for help? And so it is that the creature, the creature being fully dependent upon God, must not find the power in his prayer, but in the God who hears prayer and who answers and provides. Let us understand prayer as one of the old hymns says Prayer is the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's native air, his watchword at the gates of death. He enters heaven with prayer. And thirdly, another posture. We must pray with hands lifted up. Again, literally or figuratively, we must pray with hands lifted up, which means we must pray with expectant dependence or with dependent expectation. The lifting up of hands is a is a popular gesture these days, and and while it comes very much or we see it very much in Scripture. Uh, I'm not always sure we understand what it means there in Scripture. In Scripture, the lifting up of hands is not a gesture of praise, but of, of abject dependence, humble dependence upon God. It's not a gesture of giving something to God, but of receiving from Him what only He can give, like a beggar with empty hands reaching forth to receive the bite of food that might sustain his life. Like a baby bird opening wide its mouth to be filled and kept alive. And again, that's the reality. That is the reality of our relationship to God, whether, whether we acknowledge it or not. We don't decide to depend upon God. We do depend upon Him, and we are called to acknowledge that. We are beggars. We are baby birds, both physically as well as spiritually. We are dead unless God sustains the life that He has given us. And so we must pray with hands lifted up. And here again is the amazing thing that as we pray in this way, God has promised to work through our prayers. So let us pray with joy and and with confidence, with purpose, and with assurance. Let us pray for things as common as food and drink and shelter and and clothing. And let us do so to acknowledge the glory of God simply as as he daily sustains our lives. And let us pray for grand things, like the salvation of those outside of Christ. Let's pray for the healing of the sick. Let's pray for revival and and renewal of our our land. Let's pray for uh, comfort for those who sorrow. And as God provides his blessing in direct response to our prayers, then let us say with scripture itself that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. We do thank you for the privilege of prayer and for the instruction that your word gives us. Beginning with teaching us what our true relationship to you is, O God, that we depend. We are creatures. We depend utterly and fully upon you. We don't decide to depend upon you. We do depend upon you. May we take up in our acknowledgement this relationship, and may we pray from it in humility and in dependence, and yet with joy and with hope and with assurance, with peace, with confidence and knowing indeed that you are the one who calls us to pray and you have promised to answer our prayers, not always giving us what we ask and we thank you for that, but always answering according to your will, according to your grace, according to your power, but always and only unto your glory. Grant us to pray as we ought, indeed, teach us to pray, O Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.